Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So my icebreaker was going to be about Stuart. Yeah. Uh, just stolen the thunder off Mike a moment ago, but I was there for four years. I joined yeah. like three months after he'd left. And as I was saying to you, he was one of those guys, like his presence and his energy was felt yeah. long after he was gone. Um, I guess the whole story of this band is sort of centered around your friendship with Stuart, right? And Yeah. I mean, the band began... Uh, our first gigs together was... I was 12... Stuart was about 16 We had a band called Zephyr And uh, I lived in number 54 And he lived in number 62 On the same street So he'd be practising His new drum kit in his house Playing along to Highway to Hell, ACDC <laughs> nice. And I'll be down in my house Trying to learn it on the guitar So we thought we'd Give the people in between our houses a you know a break and maybe get a band <laughs> together and rehearse somewhere else rather than uh, in between the streets. So we were always we were always up and down each other's houses. He had an older brother, I had two older brothers. They were all listening to you know classic music like Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Leonard Skinner, ACDC. You know, so that's kind of where we got our first uh, look through somebody's record collection and CD collection and stuff like that. So it was it was all kind of just running up and down the street, really, kind of keep ourselves interested in music and um and, and out of trouble from maybe <clears throat> and out of trouble yeah you know making mixtapes and hanging about you know so it was it was always based around that i guess we were lucky we had something to focus or put our energy into from a very very young age you know 
Um, and then we just had this lady in the local youth club who let us go there every Thursday and every Sunday, and we did that for we did that till we were signed, which was eleven years later. That's how long it was, right? Right? Because I was sort of looking at the you know the history of Stereophonics, and I guess from the outside looking in, it seems like quite an overnight success story. But I yeah. imagine all bands' stories seem like that. Yeah, but it was you a don't long see night. all the legwork that goes in. Well, we went in and out to different bands, Stu uh, and I. You know, around about the age of about sixteen, seventeen, for me, I played with a few other mates of mine, and then he went off and did some things with some other people. But then, by the time we were eighteen, we were back together. Went through a th- few different bass players, a few different guitar players, and then Richard joined the band, who I'd been to school with since I was three. You know, we were born, wow, okay. born in the same hospital, and so I mean, me and Richard were very, very close friends from from nursery school straight through the comprehensive, anyway. So, Bree never played an instrument, and uh, he was a scaffolding kind of apprentice with his dad because his dad was a big scaffolding company, and I think Richard just picked the bass up to. Because everybody else in the village played guitar was his idea, and he figured if somebody played the bass, then somebody would put him into a band because everybody else was playing the guitar. So That's the smart move, right? <clears throat> it was a smart move. I think he picked up a fretless bass to start with. I don't know if that was so smart, but, <laughs> but he learned on a fretless, and um, and he joined the band. And as soon as we had that lineup, the, 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 the sound of the band started to amalgamate quite quite quickly from there. What do you think it was about the chemistry of you know you three specifically? Um, I think with we every were quite band, different. I guess so. Um, yes and no, really. I think we're all very tight. We all come from a very small town. We're all very into similar musics, but we've all got our slant on different things. Um, I think when you form a band and you're a three-piece, there's an energy that kind of forms itself. You know, you're filling in all the holes by yourself naturally with the dynamic each person contributes to what they're doing. And I think... And there's there was, no fat as well. No, right? there's no fat. And, you know, the way Stuart played the drums was very similar to the way I sang and, and a Gibson SG. And it was... It was just something that um, happened quite organically. But you, when you're in a band, you go through your phase of you want to sound like the Black Crows, the next week you want to sound like Pearl Jam, then they, and then Let Love Rule come out, Lenny Kravitz, and that was kind of cool. And and then you go through all those kind of styles through the early 90s, and then one day you write a song like maybe it was, I don't know, Local Boy in the Photograph or Billy Davies' Daughter, and you go, well, that actually sounds like us. And then once you find that little thing, that's kind of when word gets around started to become us really you know he was storytelling with very um kind of almost punky uh, attitude but then an element of people like Creedence Clearwater Revival and, and ACDC so there was a lot of country involved in there as well you know so it was just amalgamation of different things really I guess at that point in time as well in England and Wales and Scotland and even you know Northern Ireland and over yeah. there so the whole of the island there was this kind of just spiritual cultural explosion of music and bands were getting signed up left right and centre weren't they yeah. from Britpop through into like the Brit rock yeah. if you want to call it that from Therapy the Skunk yeah. and Nancy Ash yeah. Feeder you guys yeah. it was a good time to be a British <clears throat> band right? It was an amazing time to be a British band I think it was an amazing time for music actually from the start of the 90s I know the Britpop thing kind of took over a lot of that uh, headlines but there was a lot of great music. We were into more of the American stuff too. You know, we were into Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog, and Pearl Jam, and you know, Alice in Chains, and all that sort of stuff. More so than the British thing, to be honest. And then we liked the first Oasis record. Stuart liked the first Blur record. I remember him, and he, he went to see them. I think on Modern Life is Rubbish. I think Stuart had an interest in some of the Manic stuff. I didn't really know the Manics, but Stuart was the only one in the band that would buy the Enemy. So he was looking at the, the music press. So. 
I was quite blinkered from all that. I would just listen to my brother's record collections, you know, Neil Young and Dylan and all that sort of stuff. So I guess when you put it all together, Richard was into the into the Clash and the Specials and Bob Marley and, uh, and a lot of Scar stuff. So it was a great time to come through, you know, and then we ended up working with people like Skunk and Nancy and, and the Mannix and, and the Who, and there was a lot of rock band, Three Colours Red, we did gigs with and all that sort of stuff. So it was I know Chris very well, yeah. Yeah, so we were hanging about with all that sort of stuff, you know, it was, it was really good. What about the town itself? How would you describe that, set the scene for me, <laughs> as a place to grow up as a kid? What did it perhaps offer you in terms of entertainment, escape, and then also how does it maybe form your psyche and your storytelling and your lyrics and you know leave its yeah. impression on you it was a small town you know it was one road in one road out you know you couldn't drive through it you get to the top then there's a bus terminus and you have to turn around and go back out so there was a pub i guess every end of every street every 200 300 yards maybe there was a pub in those pubs there would normally be blues or soul based bands playing live at the weekend because my dad was a singer when i was a kid and i had two older brothers he played a show with Roy Orbison, I was reading, right? Is that right? Yeah, he opened up for him in uh, Batley Variety Club in Leeds, which was the place to play back in the 60s. Um, I think he did a five-night stand with him, yeah. Did he have any stories to tell you from... Uh, it was a big thing, for obviously, for him. My dad had just been signed to Polydor. Alan Freeman was the big DJ of Radio 1 then. He flew yeah. there by a helicopter to introduce my dad on stage and all that. And, um, George Martin and Ron Richards was producing my dad's record with the London Philharmonic and... He had a good little period, but he was managed by the same guy who managed the Hollies. But I think because my dad had my two older brothers, he was different in them days. You know, he weren't allowed to be married and, and have a family and stuff. So when he was coming back home, it was quite difficult because the kids didn't recognise him and all that. And I just don't think it was for him, really. Because they made him kind of sack his band and go with all the session guys, you know. So he was doing a lot of it by himself. So it wasn't as much fun, I guess. Um... But me growing up, my old man's record was on the jukebox in the local pub, so it was quite a uh, strange kind of, I guess, some sort of magical thing in a weird sort of way. The old man's on the jukebox and nobody else's father was on the jukebox, so I didn't quite understand what that was. And by this stage, my dad was playing workingmen's clubs. <coughs> so I used to follow him around the workingmen's clubs and... Were you the youngest of... Yeah, there's four ten of years, there. three of us. Three. Yeah, so I was the youngest by about nine years. Um, so you looked up to your dad a lot and sort of idolised yeah, him? Yeah, my brothers, yeah. My my oldest brother went to Northern Ireland in the army when he was 17. I was about nine, so he was doing that. There was all that stuff going on uh, with the IRA and all that. My dad was playing workingmen's clubs. My other brother was doing like a carpentry apprenticeship. So it was it was literally that kind of period, like this is England, is set really. You know, the Falklands was happening, street parties. So that was my... And I was a paper boy, and so I was delivering this news every day, so I remember quite vividly what was going on, you know. Did what was happening with the miners? <coughs> the miners' strikes. Yeah. Well, all the miners' strikes were happening. You know, we were in schools and there was no coal in the schools. So I just remember being in schools and there was a lot of Calagas fires just to heat the school because there was no central heating and uh, a lot of the local collieries kind of closed down and stuff like that. So it was. And then, of course, they funded their own colliery, which was Tower Colliery, which was a big thing, big story back in the day. Um, but people used to just enjoy the weekends, really, is my memory of it. It was a lot of work. People would work hard. There was a lot of factory work, a lot of places like uh, Itachi's and GEC and Hoover and companies like that. When the pits went down, everybody went into factory work. So everybody had some money and everybody was doing something. And then at the weekend, the social scene was amazing. There was loads of really funny characters, loads of sarcastic stories, loads of... Um, 
proper characters, but it was all based around drinking. Um, you go back there now, it's changed a lot because all the pubs are closed down, all the factories have gone to cheaper labour elsewhere. People are drinking in the house, supermarkets are selling cheap cans. The environment's completely changed and then drugs come in and, and the whole community's changed. So, But when I was there, it was a very, very happy, uh, amazing environment to grow up and always looking up to older people because I was always the younger one. I was allowed in the pubs at 13, 14 because I had older brothers and the male man was a singer, so they'd let me watch the bands. So I guess I was lucky to be allowed in the back door and sit in the corner, shut up and, and you know. Watch and learn, right? Watch and learn, have a bottle of Diamond White. <laughs> it was like seven volume. <laughs> and uh, get on with it, you know. What do you remember from writing those songs which would become the first album? <coughs> um, Does anything spring to mind? Because you're obviously celebrating 20 years this year, so yeah. I imagine you've been going it, through yeah, that album. Yeah, it has been coming back to me quite a lot because it's like, it's a... It's an album that there was probably about 25 songs written around that period of time. Some of them leaked onto the second album. A lot of them those days leaked onto B-sides because you had to release all these double CD formats and all that. So there was a lot of material and it was a lot of um, a lot of stories. Uh, I remember I remember writing Local Boy in the Photograph on my, on my brother's bedroom floor, really, in a little book I had. Uh, I had a part-time job working in a fruit and veg stall in the market. I remember writing a thousand trees on the back of a brown bag I was selling fruit and veg and more life on a tramps vest and stuff like that and she takes her clothes off all those types of songs and and then I went to art college while I was selling fruit and veg to do filmmaking and script writing so a lot of those stories then led into uh, ideas for making short films you know it was at the time where Jimmy McGovern was doing stuff on the telly like Cracker and our friends in the north and, and Pulp Fiction just come out. There was a lot of really good dialogue and a lot of narrative stuff happening. So, you know, uh, Ken Loach and so a lot of that leaked into, I guess, some of the songwriting. And I remember playing one of the songs in a room one day, and and somebody was just, I could just see somebody pick their head up and listen to the words, and I'd never, never really knew somebody would listen to the words, you know. Um, was that maybe your way in then? Is that how you found your voice, is through the stories? Yeah, because I was pushed into being a singer because my dad was a singer. I, I, there was many bands I was in that I wasn't the singer. Right. And Stuart wrote the lyrics a long time, bef just before I started writing the words for Word Guess Around. Um, because I was the youngest, I was like, four, well, I mean, what did I have to say? I'd never done anything, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then I guess I started writing some stuff and people started to turn their head. There was a guy that uh, run the Ivy Bush called Graham Davis who was a massive Bob Dylan fan. And I remember him reading, because we used to put the lyrics in the back of our demos. I remember him reading it and giving me a critique on it and, I, and some of it he liked. And I thought, well, he knows what he's talking about because he listens to all this stuff that's very lyrical. And um, that gave me a bit of confidence, I guess. Um, and then I didn't really start singing the way that I sing it until I probably started listening to stuff like Temple of the Dog and Chris Cornell and, and Chris Robinson and the Black Rose and then one day I remember being in a rehearsal room and I just we were playing really loud and I just went for this thing which I'd never had the confidence to go for before and it actually came out and it went somewhere and it kind of surprised me and shocked me and I can still vividly remember it and he was probably being influenced by that Temple of the Dog record where he's kind of screaming but he's not screaming in a way that he does with Soundgarden it's very melodic you know and I guess from that point, I started to sing a bit like I sing on that first record. So then I did kind of believe in myself as a singer, but up until that point, I just thought I was treading water, really, and, you know, filling in 
until somebody else was going to come <laughs> along sort of thing that seems to be the story with a few bands <clears throat> kind of nobody really wants to do it so you just go right i'll do it and then through doing it is how you find your voice and become yeah. a singer yeah well it's a very vulnerable thing you know um I remember doing it, standing in a workingman's club singing, and I remember my old man walking in, and I was about to stop, and he's like, just carry on, you know. And uh, my parents were very honest. They still are very honest. I mean, they they wouldn't, they wouldn't say if something's amazing or whatever. They'll just say exactly how they feel it, you know. <coughs> What's the worst bit of criticism they've ever given you? Did they just like, that's cold, man? Uh, <laughs> I did a song on Top of the Pops called Movie Star. It was like top five, and um, it was the first time I'd ever used Indian monitoring. And I knew the song was too low for me when I recorded it, but it was one of those songs you carry on going with because it had a cool vibe. And and I sang it on telly, and I knew I knew I'd did a really average shit job about it. And I, it's not often that I go there, but it was it was bad because I couldn't really. I'd never had this experience with you in my head, you know, you in my voice inside my head, really close with these in your monitoring things. And I came off, and all the record company go, "No, it was great, it was great," and I knew it wasn't great, and I was just waiting for this text because my old man would normally text after a TV thing going, you know, nice one or whatever. And I think he texts something like, that was the worst singing I think I've ever heard you do. <laughs> and I just Don't thought... hold back, Dad. Yeah. I remember going to the hotel bar with the boys and having a few bottles of Tiger. I don't know why there was Tiger beer there, but I vividly remember that. But but sometimes you need that, you know? Keeps you grounded, right? It's very hard to do it. You know, when I got girls now, I got daughters, and they're starting to play piano, mess about with stuff. And it's very hard to be... Um, encouraging, critical, all at the same time. Because if you don't tell them when they're, because some parents just just tell everybody how amazing you are all the time, and I don't really think it, it gains you much. But I think there's techniques in doing it in a less um, abrupt way, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's where we were from, and that's what it was about, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you feel like you know when you got the sort of massive success that you did off that first album, it went gold fairly soon after yeah. its release, right? Yeah. Did you feel that your life was changing, or did that home community that you came from and that relationship with your father and mother and the people mm. you had in the life that kept you grounded? Did that keep you sort of focused and humble? Because it must be hard to <clears throat> kind of all of a sudden be I on think the, the cover fir- of magazines and yeah. I mean, I didn't. I, I mean, the first album I think went platinum after the second album did. But it made a proper story out of what we were because it was literally, it was 97, I think, when it charted, like Beer now was top five and OK Computer. So it was that period. So it was a lot of big albums out, Super Furry Animals and all that. So it was it was a period of time which was very much celebrated, you know, the new labour and all that sort of stuff. It was a big time in the country. When Literally when Princess Diana died, it was, it was you know, it was, I can remember it quite vividly when it came out, that whole period of time, what the country was like. Spice Girls as well, Spice wasn't it? Girls. It was huge. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, it was all that. Um, but I didn't think we sounded like the Britpop thing. We had a different sort of attitude. So because we were so close as a band, I don't think we let a lot of it go to our head at that point too much. And during the Word Gets Around tour, we were still going in and out of the studio to record what was to become... Uh, performance cocktails I think when they said we could headline something like Cardiff Castle which was 10,000 people it was a bit of a shock to our system kind of going really 10,000 people you know less than 15 months ago we were literally playing in the pub opposite Cardiff Castle so that was quite a thing I don't think the thing about us being on the front covers and the band being affected mentally uh uh, through the situation of being thrown into this kind of environment happened really until the third album 
I think the first two albums we were really enjoying it. We were really comfortable in our own skin. And so busy that perhaps so you're busy not aware was going. of this. And then crazy it started. Storm. Yeah, then it was starting to people were kind of coming to us for answers and looking into and analysing things a lot more than we'd ever really intended. And uh, you then tend to go on the back foot. You become very defensive, and you become. You know, everybody starts becoming in a relationship. Some Stuart got married, uh, Richard got married. I was trying to keep pushing the band forward, and it was only then that stuff started to go a little bit like uh, less less sure of ourselves, I guess. Oddly, that was like when we were headlining the Pyramid Stage in Glastonbury and Reading and Leeds, and you know, it's, it's all happening at the same time. You know, in the front of every magazine, everything's going on, and you and you're not quite as comfortable with yourself as you was when you began. You know, because uh, things change as you as you get put into that environment. Because it's not a very natural environment, you know. No. So I think as well with you guys, like the press have been pretty shitty towards you at times, haven't they? Yeah. And pretty cruel, and that's yeah. obviously got to be hard to deal with. And well, that was the period where that was happening, really. And it was, um, I mean, it was undeniable that the band was probably one of the biggest in the country. We were selling at the biggest venues. We were headlining all the major festivals the records were all going number one it was all platinum and um and i think a couple of journalists were putting us in it was that time where the enemy and that they were slagging off people like weller and us and calling it all meat and potatoes and you know it, it was too simplistic for some of the journalists i guess and the jeep album which was the third album was even more simplistic because we actually took away a lot of the electric stars now record is more of a almost like a country acoustic sort of record um and I guess I didn't really appreciate that criticism because I thought we were doing really good work. And looking at it now, you know, in the eye of the storm, you're very, you're very young for one. Uh, you're very hurt, I guess. And I wrote one song about one journalist, and then from that point, I went on a little preview tour for that third album. And I think I was drinking like half a bottle of sherry or something on stage every night for some reason. It was supposed to warm you. Why throat. sherry? I remember somebody. <laughs> my dad had said when I was a kid, you know, a little glass of sherry before you go on. You know, he warmed the vocal right, cords. Right. But I was ended up sitting down doing acoustic shows, drinking half a bottle of three quarter, and he was getting very warm and fuzzy and quite a nice feeling up there. Yeah, yeah. But then I had a popper, a few journalists, not by name, but I just was calling journalists lazy and uh, criticizing them, and. Um, because that's how I felt at that time, and I and I still believe the song because the song was about one particular person who came on tour with us. And Talking about Mr. Writer, yeah, <laughs> it was about one guy, and he went away and wrote a different version of accounts. And I, I just thought, well, I'd write my version of account, you know. But like, have a nice day is about one taxi driver, you know. Dakota, you made me feel like the one is about one girl. It's not like I'm not talking about everybody, uh, but it got kind of that I hated every journalist in the country so then I would walk into an interview and they'd say so right and so the first thing they would say to me would be right so you hate journalists right and then I'm like well, where am I supposed to go from there you know so I was uh, for a few years it was very difficult to be yourself yeah and to be who, who I really was which was really just a young kid from Wales who wanted to write songs I never wanted to be famous I never wanted fast cars and all that I just wanted to be in a rock and roll band and play songs that I liked you know so I couldn't quite understand that for a long time and how I was supposed to play that card and how I was supposed to dig my way out of it. So I just got my head down and just carried on making music, really, the best I could. Do you think it's a British tradition to want to tear down people <coughs> who are successful? Because it does seem to me to be unique to this island. You know, you get stateside and they celebrate success a lot more. And 
and especially yeah. in the press over here there seems to be this tendency and i'm not trying to yeah warm you up to slag off the press here i'm just no, asking I'm do you not, think I'm it not is really a British that, thing i'm not really in that position I, i'm not really in that place anymore i don't really yeah. think uh, either way but i think what I did realise was I never had any problems when I'd go on radio stations and stuff because people could see me from where I was. When I'd be on telly, I could do comedy TV shows with people and it'd be all fine. And, I, and it took me a long time to work out that actually in every other format that we do any work or promotion, we're actually all right. It's mm. only when somebody else puts their opinion about it, which isn't really us speaking anyway, that it was getting swayed, you know. Um, but I genuinely, since that time, I haven't really felt that bad about it the reviews have been you know good on most of the records and stuff we've done and uh, it's you know it is what it is and I don't really read any of that stuff I think it's become less of a of a th- I mean that was that was our third album this is going to be our 10th so it was a long time ago but it was a period of time where I think everybody in, in the music industry at that time all bands were having a lot of banter via the press you know, people were having a pop of people via the press yeah, yeah. to make headlines. It was that kind of, you know, even winning awards, you would go up there and you would say something controversial because that's what you were supposed to do at that time in the middle of the 90s, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's really like that now. So, but yeah, there is a tendency in Britain to... Because you look at like like Amy Winehouse as the yeah the key example. And did you know Amy? There was a, I met Amy a couple of times. A yeah. moment there. Did you like, were you going to write a song for her or was there... Yeah, I wrote Being Caught Cheating for her. Um, it, with her in mind, uh, and uh, I think there was a story in the press, and I was writing this blues song in the house one day, and I thought it'd be really good for her, and I bumped into her in a party in in the Mandarin Oriental. I think it was Lucien Grange coming back to Universal, because I think he'd been in America, and Lucien tried to sign us years before to Polydor. And she was there, um, and I remember having a quick chat with her, but I never got to talk to her about the music, because at that time, everybody's very protective over her, cause, and she kind of got carted away sort of thing and then we did a festival in Spain with her which was not long before she died um, but yeah I mean it's one of those things really it's a bit like Springsteen said as well though and he said if you hang around 20 years people start giving you trophies you know and I've definitely noticed in the last two or three years particularly in the last two albums that there's a feeling for the band that is way more celebrated than criticised. You know, there's a lot of 17-year-old kids in the front row. There's people discovering the music. Kind of since the the streaming thing and people are discovering and making up their minds by themselves about what music is rather than being told what to like this week since. And we've been making some good records lately. Um, it kind of comes back to what, I guess, the truth of what it is people are, are doing and people discover it by themselves. You know, they're less dictated to, I suppose, you know. Yeah, it's more of a democracy, isn't it? I was going to ask you about your perception of how the industry's changed because obviously you were there through the halcyon glory days mm. of the record-making business. And then I think, you was it the first six or seven albums you did all on V2? <clears throat> yeah, first, yeah, first six, yeah. And then that, I guess, coincided with the time when the industry was changing. Yeah. And you guys obviously set up your own label for yeah. graffiti on the train, did yeah. a couple independent and... You must have noticed not just your album sales, but album sales as a whole in that time kind of dip a bit, right? Yeah, I mean it's been a, it's been a, a journey, you know, and, and it's lots of different ways. We've always been on an independent label, and then that got sold to like Universal. It wasn't a great period of time at the Universal. They did a great job on the greatest hits thing. That was a contractual thing we wanted to do because um, we wanted to celebrate that music. If we had to do it, it was in the thing. Um, but then when it came to making studio records, I, I felt like I was on a <clears throat> on a treadmill there, really. 
Um, and I was writing a, like a, a screenplay and, a, and an album at the same time, called Graffiti on the Train, and you know the, the music came out before the idea for the film and stuff. And and I just wanted to put that out independently, and and we found a, a partner with Marcus Russell and um, Ignition to put that out with us. And that album went platinum. You know, we would we thought we were done on the radio. We thought nobody's playing the music on the radio anymore, and. Because that's what Universal told us. We'd put out the greatest hits and they said they couldn't get a song on the radio. So we thought, well, if you can't get a song on the radio from a greatest hits, then I don't really know what we meant to do anymore. So we made a very left record for us. It was very orchestral, very filmic. Didn't think people would play it. Four songs grey-listed. It was odd. And then it all kind of almost had a resurgence from there, really. Give us a confidence anyway. So um, Record sales generally, I think, are very tough for people now. Uh, the live market, I think, is huge right now. But even though the record sales are down, I think there's a lot more people in the world listening to your music. You know, we go to countries far and, you know, all over the place. And, you know, they, <clears throat> you could be in Kuala Lumpur and there's 2,000 people standing in front of you singing your songs. You know, I didn't, I, I genuinely didn't think Kuala Lumpur really existed until <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> but it's like uh, people are discovering music, you know, as you see. People walk around with headphones all over the place. I remember when we made word guests around, we would make jokes and say, let's put this overdub on it for the headphone listeners because people didn't listen to music on headphones then. Now everyone does. And now everybody yeah, was yeah. using headphones, so it's weird. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did you keep in touch with Stuart? And um, when he left the band, was that a difficult situation? Because obviously you'd started it together. Yeah. What uh, happened? Now? Yeah. Why did he leave? Uh, Stuart left. Well, for, you know, there was problems steering through the band for, I guess, the making of just enough education to perform going into that tour um, and then we kind of resolved that and then we came back we made You Gotta Go Let's Come Back which was the fourth album we hired a big manor house down in Henley it was owned by Trevor Horn which was amazing really really enjoyable time making that the that album record. you produced it's the first one I produced yeah, yeah. 
Ernest so Fister. the recording process itself was it was elevated. really relaxed it was really relaxed all the role crew were there everybody was hanging out it was like a just a big kind of party making a great record it was a very soulful record yeah yeah um so we had a good time making that record you know um and then we got together in Stewart's garage to do the rehearsals the pre-production to go out on the road and we thought everything was great and then we were just about to go on a tour again and then Stuart said he didn't want to come to Australia and he didn't want to come to America to do the promotion and then he went back to the problems we had before where it'd be me and Richard sitting on a stool doing acoustic sessions when we should have been doing a rock and roll set so it became frustrating uh, because there was like a push-pull there was never any arguments ever any arguments None of this was said through fire, none of it. And that's the truth, really. It was just a case of we were trying to move forward and he was kind of satisfied with where he was at um, and he didn't really want to push the band anymore in that way, which is it's hard when you're trying to keep on going one way and somebody doesn't really want to go with you. So, Well, your schedule was relentless, wasn't it, for a yeah. long time? It was like, yeah. write an album, put it out, tour, write an album, put it out, tour. Yeah, and it still is, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. just the way that it goes around, really. But um, So you think maybe So he... then we were in New York, and it kind of it, it hit the fan that night, and um, he he came to America, actually, to do the tour, and then he couldn't play because he wasn't very well. And then we were stuck on this tour, and Steve Gorman filled in from the Black Rose for one night. Stuart went home to get himself well again, and... During that period, it kind of just fizzled out and we kind of parted ways around that time. And we didn't speak for about, I don't know, maybe six months, a year. But then after that, we were kind of texting and talking. He he was the first person to text me when Dakota went to number one, saying congratulations on, you know, getting your first number one single. Then we'd meet up for the rugby. Um, and then I introduced him to Javier down in Cardiff. St David's Hotel after one of the rugby matches I think Wales played Argentina we had a drink together that night so it was only about a year really where it was a bit like you know we didn't really see each other but then we were always texting and getting in touch with each other even up until the day before day before he died because I was supposed to meet him the day that he did die at my uncle's funeral because my uncle had died on the sat on the week before and we were going to a funeral together and ironically he died the morning we were going to that funeral so it, it never really stopped communicating. Um, so I haven't got any regrets in any of that sort of stuff. He left the band, you know, that's a shame because we were brothers and we'd love to have made music forever together. But you can't make music with people if they don't want to be doing touring, you know. It's not really part of the... You can't make that work, you know. So it's very, very sad. But that's kind of what it was, really. Did he always have that side of him? Do you think fame brought it out? Of him, uh, well, he was a character, you know. Stuart was what he was. He had a lo- you know, a lovely, loud voice, massive smile on his face all the time. And I'd go up his house when I was fifteen, and he was practicing his autograph. You know, that's really? kind of the person he was. He had the best autograph. He looked like a Coca Cola logo. <laughs> um, you know, he'd have a mug. My name's Stuart. I'm a superstar. He, he was just that guy. He wanted to be he, a rock he, star. He, he wanted to be a rock star and have a fast car and big house swimming pool and garden and all that sort of stuff and fast life and we used to take the piss out of each other all the time in the pubs before we had a record deal because I didn't want any of that um, I didn't really know what I wanted I just knew that this is what I was doing <laughs> but he had a goal at the end of it to achieve some of that stuff so and fair play to him you know we ended up playing actually um, in Dave Roden who's our sound engineer since day one started off as the van driver tour manager sound engineer you know 
he was getting married and Stuart was at the wedding and me and Richard were at the wedding and we played together that night and that was the last time we played together so that was awfully drunk but it was quite nice to play on stage together again yeah but he was a, he was a good man you know I miss him a lot every day I'd never met him I'd never had the chance but as I said at Kerrang he was always just there omnipresent and everyone loved him to bit yeah no he is man I used, he, you know he literally is in my dreams every night it's weird and we're always laughing in the dreams it's really odd and it's I wake up in every morning and I think alright and then I go alright he's not you it's very very weird because if you spend that much time with somebody it is literally your brother people think oh there was a split in the band but that's I mean when you've been with somebody for that amount of time you know that that six months is not really anything to do with anybody you know what I mean it's it's not about that we knew each other way before like, you know before anybody else knew who he was so it's kind of it's a bigger thing than that did the US side of things kick off sort of in the wake of Dakota or were you doing alright over there before that single because that was the one which really like elevated your stateside right uh, I think and it's like that holy grail for British bands isn't it to break America and well, so many Dakota, yeah, don't do it Dakota kind of is one of those songs that kind of works everywhere I don't really know why or how it was a very very quick demo I did on Askew Road in Acton weirdly three hours and I pass it every day driving here now it's weird because I'd, it literally was like oh where's that come from um, and people connect to it so it's nice to have a song I think we've got a bunch of songs but it's nice to have one song that you you know you close a set with and makes people feel that excited and happy and then they walk home with that feeling it's you know if you could if you had the recipe for that you'd bottle it but I don't know what that yeah, is right. so, but it's um yeah, it's a magic little moment, you know. Thankfully, we've got a bunch of those in the set list where, you know, I wouldn't want to be a one-hit wonder waiting for two hours just for that moment. We've got a few No, of them. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was I going to ask you? Let's, <clears throat> oh, Tom Jones. We've got to talk about Tom. Yeah. What was he like to collaborate with? And Tom was uh, a massive character. I mean, again, that was. I remember me and Stuart and Richard sitting down with Tom the first time in some pub on the uh, Harrow Road. And we just <clears throat> fired names at him, and then he would fire back uh, a minute and a half anecdote about those people. And he went from Morecambe and Wise to Elvis, and he had one for everybody, and Muhammad Ali, and and it's weird because we we were amazed by how he would have met all these people, and then and now we've been in it for twenty years. We've probably got a minute and a half anecdote for quite a lot of people we've met, and it's. It's a beautiful thing to have had that experience from your, your your elders, if you will. You know, we were lucky enough to tour with The Who. We were lucky enough to tour with David Bowie on his last tour. We did the Rolling Stones, you know. And to have these stories from these people pass to you. So then when you have a drink with somebody and they have some sort of expectancy about what it is you do for a job, you can actually give that kind of enjoyment back in a way because the masters have kind of taught you that you're not dropping names people actually want to hear some of these stories it's quite interesting you know so Tom would tell us loads of stories and it was just to sing with him was quite terrifying because I just had to sing there was a glass screen there he was one side I was the other side they put the track on which we'd recorded the day before and I think we did two takes of Mamba told me not to come and he said right let's go for a Chinese one is it <laughs> and that was that we went wow. to a Chinese on Baker Street I love it so it was uh, <laughs> was it intimidating or were you just yeah, sort it was of rising in- to the moment and no I mean you can't try to when you do a duet with anybody you have to 
I think some people go about it trying to outsing the next person, but there's no way you're going to outsing Tom Jones. So there's no point in going there. So you just try to be yourself, and hopefully that he matches up in the mix. The, the two voices work quite well, thankfully. But um, it's a great song. It was quite yeah. era defining as well. Yeah, it was a good moment. It was a good moment for Tom as well. Cause I think it yeah. was. His, I think it's his more successful album, yeah, uh, yeah. sales wise. Anyway, I think he enjoyed it, and I think he enjoyed the experience of uh, working with people like the Cardigans and the Mannix and. Um, it was a good idea on paper. It was a crazy idea, and I remember sitting next to him in a in a, a hotel in Cardiff after going to see a show the first night I met him, and I knew bands like Space and Catatonia and all these people were doing it. And I was devastated that we hadn't been asked to do. It. And I bent his ear, and I'd tell him how much I love Otis Redding and Sam Cooke and all these people, and I probably bored him to tears with my knowledge of soul music. And then anyway, we had the call, and he gave, and we had the opportunity to do it. And, Amazing. Yeah. Uh, tell me about David Bowie. You got a good story uh, to hand from him. David Bowie was. Uh, we just come off. <clears throat> um, I think we'd been doing like. What tour had we done? We'd done a U two elevation tour, and then it led on to a call saying, "Do you want to do uh, David Bowie's tour across America?" And it was the reality tour, which was two thousand and. Three, I think he was the first state side tour which Stewart didn't play on because uh, Steve Gorman was playing drummers on that so it was just after that period of time and it was quite surreal because I was never really my brothers were more into Creedence Clearwater Revival and Neil Young and Dylan and ACDC Leonard Skinner uh, you know Crosby, Sills, Nash and that sort of stuff so there wasn't much of the David Bowie kind of stuff Roxy Music sort of stuff in my house it wasn't really that kind of camp my brothers so I was never really um, starstruck by the by the situation because he to was me never that larger than he was life. never that larger than life yeah. thing to me. I, obviously, I was very aware of what he was mm-hmm. and I knew the hits and stuff, but I didn't really have a massive knowledge. But our keeper player in the band, Tony, is the biggest David Bowie fan of all time, and he was absolutely petrified about doing this whole thing. So when we did the tour with him, Bowie would just be watching our sound checks and he'd be walking around. Um, and have a chat with him I was writing short stories and giving him some short stories to read and he was giving me critiques on short stories he'd be watching the sound checks because we only had a half hour for a sound check and he, he had this two hours or whatever and if we had a 45 minute set each guitar for each song was a different guitar tuning or something so I'd have to like <clears throat> do 40 seconds of one song change the guitar check the other guitar 40 seconds of that one change the guitar check the other one and then I'd walk off stage and he'd put his arm around me and he'd go you know, if you extended a few of those songs, you said you might be onto something there. So he was, uh, he was quite a funny, funny guy, and he was very dry, very natural. Um, we had a five-side football tournament with him uh, in the middle of America, where he'd be on the side of the pitch and heckling me on the pitch. You know, quite <laughs> surreal seeing the thin white dukes shouting <laughs> football commentary. Uh, onto the pitch and then we lost and he lowered the trophy above our heads on a piece of string like spinal tap and told the whole audience in America how crap we were a football and stuff like that so he was he was um, a gentleman really and then we both headlined the Isle of Wight Festival together and that's the last um, that's the last we saw of him then but we had a great time watching somebody do that catalogue every night watching him manipulate his catalogue from the east coast to the west coast changing in the middle to do all the let's dance sort of stuff and then going back to the edgier kind of Trent Reznor stuff in New York and he's very very interesting uh, watching a guy that's going forward and not going back at any point you know always trying to 
do something new and develop and it was very inspiring to be part of that you guys for me have always had that sim not on quite a bowie level but mm. i think every record you've made has always been slightly different you mentioned there's like a soul record there's like the yeah. new wavy kind of record you've had more acoustic influences more string influences what about the new one 20 years into your career album number 10 yeah how would you categorize <clears throat> and maybe compare this one to previous efforts of yours well i try really not to make albums anymore i try to just go to work every day and make songs and you know, I've got three daughters now, which I I kind of drop one of the two, but then I drop one of the nursery and I drop the other one in the school and then I get in the car and I come to the studio and I I just kind of make music and don't really think about how they slot into anything. And it's been really good, the last three records doing that. I've never had my own studio until like 2011 or whatever it was. And what I've gained from doing that is you just make a bunch of songs and then they're all on a they're all on a hard drive somewhere and then you kind of just pick the best ones for the best project um in the past you'd have to go into a studio for six weeks finish make a record and then maybe 80 percent that record was really good but then the other you know 20 percent was maybe a bit rushed you knew you didn't have many days left of the session sort of thing but i think this way you can be more concise a bit like picking a football team really i suppose you've got 20 in your squad and you pick the best 10 for the event that you're trying to do so musically I think, you know, All In One Night is slightly outside of our comfort zone sonically. I think it's very, very sparse, very kind of vulnerable, but very narrative. So there's a story that you can listen to, quite filmic, I guess. And I think there's a lot of feelings on the record. I don't think there's one style sound-wise on the record, but I think there's a feeling of... Um, I guess there's a feeling of, of a hopeful sense on the album. I felt when I was... Oh, I discovered after I'd finished writing most of the record, I'd been putting myself in a position where I'd been very kind of anxious and aware of I was changing choices in my life and decisions in my life because of everything that was going on in the world. There's a constant 24-hour noise, you know, Sims what happened last night in Barcelona or wherever. There's stuff happening everywhere. And we played the Bataclan, you know. I, I played New York just after 9-11. And these things, they, they kind of drip feed into you when they get closer to home when you have a few more kids it just becomes like, well, where are we going now? What are we supposed to be doing? But rather than writing a record about how dark and how miserable all that was, it turned out that I wrote a record that was kind of saying, very honest record, going, I used to be a bit more fearless than I am now, but, but at the same time, I think we should be celebrating the good things in life as well, you know, these little small moments in life, because we're constantly bombarded with bad news every second of the day, really. So I think it's kind of a hopeful record and it's an uplifting record and I think it's something, if there's 40 minutes of escape on there, then that's what it is, I guess. How's being a dad changed your life and also your approach to lyric writing? Has it changed your perspective on the world? Uh, I, th You know, it's weird because we had to search up some stuff this week on YouTube to find some of the old B-sides, which we couldn't find, and I found a few old interviews of how I was before a kid and how I was after a kid, and there's definitely a difference, I think. We were kind of... Uh, I guess there's a there's a selflessness after you've had kids and before kids you're very um, very sure I think you're less sure after you've had kids or you're less uh, you're less cocksure anyway you know there's a thing about you that maybe it's more humbleness I don't know but yeah there's definitely um, I don't think you change your lyrics in a way where it all gets softer or anything like that I just think you have a wider scope I think it becomes more widescreen it's not so tunnel visioned it's not so just about 
maybe not so direct about just your opinion. There's a wider opinion within the music and within the lyrics. So, um, but I'm learning that every day. I mean, everybody that grows, you know, every minute, every day, you learn something different, and you learn something different about yourself. And I think there's always room to be changing and growing. I don't think you, you know, ever stop doing that. So, children without children, I think um, that's life. I guess that's growth, isn't it? And what about the world at large? It is scary times we're living through, right? It's very. It's a weird time to try to explain to when you do have kids what's going on. You know why a guy would drive a van down the street and run into people where you know you were walking eighteen months ago with your kids, or you know I go to work and I play in in rock and roll venues and there's people walking in there with machine guns. You know how do you explain that to somebody? You know, um, so it is very surreal. It is very weird. But like I said, when I was nine and ten I've never really been away from this conflict when I was a kid you know my, like my brother went to Northern Ireland uh, I remember the Falklands war happening you know I didn't know what was going on with that I remember being afraid to walk past bins in London when I was a kid first coming up here because people were putting bombs in bins outside tube stations and in a way I've kind of been carrying that anxiety for that kind of distant threat really for 30 years when I've started to think about it recently it's a weird invisible thing that's always kind of been there really um, in our, in my generation anyway I've never known anything other than that it's a shame but it has always been there in one way or other um, and maybe that marks I don't know how you write or how you see the world or the sensitivity or the, or, or the way that you do write poetry or songs or whatever maybe it is all in there I don't really know but it's it's something about that Upbringing in a very small town, you're safe there. There's four mountains surrounded. There's nothing. Nobody's coming in there. You know, even when the Falklands War was happening, you still felt kind of safe there. Because I didn't understand what that war was about when I was a kid. You just think, right, now's a war. You know, um, and I know boys from my street would go into that war. So it was a bit like the deer hunter for me. And then they were coming back and they were on a street party. I didn't know what it meant. You know, but I was the first time I nicked a can of beer and drank it around the back of a lane because it was a can of beer in the street and I was about ten. So it's. Um, yeah, it's a tough time for kids to understand, I think. Very, very tough. It's interesting you say that, actually, about the sort of threat always being there because my dad was saying to me, you know, in the 80s, the IRA were bombing yeah. London left, right and centre. And he said that that has kind of, I guess, been superseded by what's happening now, but only because of, I think, the media hype. Well, not hype, that's the wrong word, but do you know what I mean? There's so Yeah, well, there wasn't 24-hour news. There was, there was a 6 o'clock news, 10 o'clock news, and that was it, really. There was yeah. no way they were talking about... There's no way you were getting live coverage of a war, you know. I remember when the Gulf War happened, then you were, it was live on CNN. You know, you could watch soldiers walking. And you, you didn't get that with Northern Ireland. You'd have a bit of, you'd have a, a 10 second clip, and that was the end of that. It wouldn't be repeated for 24 hours. Yeah, and you wouldn't get it on your phone. You know, you wouldn't get. You know, there was no devices where you, you know, you wake up in the morning or you, you're sitting on the toilet and reading about it. You know, that wasn't happening. You know, um, do you use stuff like Twitter, Facebook? Are you no. into that? No, no. The band is on. Or social media, but I've never been on social media personally. No, it's a wise man. I ain't got the time for that. Yeah, no, no. I like it. I'm <laughs> on like a Facebook detox at the moment. I oh, have yeah. to use it a lot to promote this and my work and stuff. But I don't log in anymore. <clears throat> I just like post a picture direct from another Instagram account into Facebook. Yeah, and I've actually been off for like a month, and it's been great. I actually feel in myself happier. No, I, absolutely. You're not surrounded by all this. Yeah, I see yet. it with my with my kids. My kids are not on any of it, and all their friends are. 
but mine's only just coming up with thirteen, and the other, and the other one's ten, and the other one's a baby. But but there's a, there's a feel even where, even if they binge, if it's a rainy day and they binge on YouTube, just watching YouTubers making slime and putting loads of sweets in it and stuff, which is really funny. Even if they binge on that for a few hours a day, they come off it a different person to where they went on it, you know, and they don't realise it, you know. But it's I just find it's um, it's just okay to be bored. You know, when your head is empty, something good will come into it. And that's all I'm trying to teach my family. It's like, I ended up doing what I... I'm not saying you have to do what I did, but driving in a car, looking out of a window, being bored shitless on a job, standing around in the rain in a bus stop, all that stuff is when the good stuff comes in your head. There wouldn't have been, you know, your man that invented this or invented that without a guy being bored somewhere trying to think of something. If you're constantly consumed with something all the time then nothing new is going to come into there because you're just constantly distracted with fucking nonsense, if you want the truth, you know. So I think it's okay to be bored. That's yeah. when the imagination starts running free, well, as you Well, of say. course. That's what your brain... That's when you become active, you know. You have to... You have to kind of empty your head to let some new stuff come into your head, you know. But if it's constantly full of noise, then it's a fucking mess, isn't it? <laughs> There's a funny thing now, and do this the next time you're at a train station... You look around the platform and every single person is just eyes down on their phone. No one's looking up. No one's kind of interacting. It's the holidays, man. It's the one. I was I was away and there was four, it was four people in a the family. There was a beautiful sun sitting on behind them and every one of them was on a fucking iPad. And nobody's even, you know, looking at what's going on behind them. It's like you come on holiday to spend some time together and you're all looking at... <laughs> Fuck knows what. iPads are out, <clears throat> iPhones. Yeah. Love it. Well, I like that you're not raising your family to be that way. I'm That's trying hard. It's a, a time. It's a, it's a fucking hard balance. Time. It's a fight. It is a fight. <laughs> um, well, listen, mate, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank and you. congratulations on, you know, what's been a great run so far. Yep. And here's to album number 10, which is out in November, right? It is, yeah. Of this year. And you've yep. got one of these shows for the self-titled, uh, the debut album, 20 uh, Year Celebration. We gonna, When's that happening? We're going to do that on the 25th of August, which is the... 20 anniversary of the day it was released to the day yeah right. it was on. weird because it actually fell with the day off and we said well let's fill it so yeah it's going to be good <laughs> love it uh, thank you thank, thank you, you very much cheers, cheers mate man. thank you Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 